Good morning. I always forget, if I don't click this on before I get up here, it usually takes a couple seconds to connect properly, and so you guys get the morning part of good, but I, I think you got the point. Um, this morning, we're continuing a sermon series that we began uh, back in January. We have a couple more to go in this particular series. Uh, I'm, I'm particularly excited about this morning because uh, it's... It's a topic we don't really discuss in church a whole lot. Uh, it's one that uh, in many ways I think we like to believe we've kind of moved on from, uh, but it is something that comes up so often in the New Testament that to not address it is, I think, maybe a failure of our thinking about what the priorities of Jesus were. And this morning, as we're talking about the different ways in which Jesus interacts with people in his world, uh, in his time, in his place, groups of people that were sometimes marginalized, uh, we can't help but talk about how Jesus addressed the slaves in his culture and also the poor. And I want to be clear this morning that in Jesus' time, oftentimes these were one and the same. Someone who was a slave was probably a slave because they were poor, because they had incurred enough debt in their lives that they could not pay off themselves, and so oftentimes they would sell themselves, or even worse, their children, into slavery. Because of debt, because of an overburdening of, of their financial situation, they found themselves enslaved to another person. And one of the first things that Jesus does in his ministry is proclaim that it is the year of the Lord's favor. He begins preaching about the kingdom of heaven. Several gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, actually point out that the gospel that Jesus preached was the gospel that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And when Jesus goes into different places, he's trying to show what it looks like for the kingdom of heaven to be a reality. And so when we read Jesus preaching or proclaiming that something is being fulfilled in him, what we're seeing is Jesus saying, this is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. When Jesus says to the crowd in Matthew chapter 5 that he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, He's telling us that the things that he believes are the fulfillment of the law are what the kingdom of heaven looks like. When Jesus reads this passage from Isaiah, which we're going to read again in a moment, and he says, in your presence today, this has been fulfilled, he's telling us this is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And so I want us to be really clear in our minds that when we look at Jesus and we look at the way that he interacts with the people around him, when he, when he speaks words about what he is there to fulfill, we need to come to the realization that these are important issues for us because they are important issues for the kingdom of heaven. And we may think we have them settled and solved, but sometimes I think that our understanding of what's being spoken of here is, is very much informed by the culture we live in and not by the culture that Jesus was speaking to. And so this morning I want us to look at this passage again, uh, this passage that Terry read for us, and I want us to think about what it is that Jesus is saying about what Isaiah, whom he's quoting, says, and what God is trying to communicate through this moment in the life of Christ. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. 
And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And we'll read the Isaiah passage here in just a moment. But I want you to think about this for just a second here. Jesus is appearing in the town where he was raised. These are people that are familiar to him. They're people that know his name. In, in just a little bit, they're going to be really upset with him and like, isn't this, you know, Mary and Joseph's son? You know, is, is this really the guy that we think he is? Like, uh, why, sh why, sh why should we listen to him? Isn't he a little bit full of himself here? Other times, we have this situation where they're like, hey, we heard that you did some pretty great things elsewhere. Come on, show us, show us the stuff here. They're not particularly pleased or impressed with Jesus at the moment. And Jesus begins his ministry in Nazareth by quoting the prophet Isaiah. Now, reading from the scroll of Isaiah, it is not coincidence that he's handed this book. John Kester would want me to point out to you, God doesn't deal in coincidences. When he is handed the scroll, this is something that God has intended from the very beginning of time for Jesus to read. Isaiah is a book intrinsically linked to the life and story of the Messiah. And when Jesus reads this passage to a room full of people that know him, the expectation is, well, maybe he's going to do all right. We, uh, this, we know he was raised reading his Torah. He went through his you know, years of learning and meditating and studying. But we also know that he grew up you know, in a, a fairly common household. You know, he's part of that tecton group, the, the carpenter, the stonecutter household. Uh, you know, he's got some skills we're interested in seeing what he can do. We've heard somewhere else he's done some pretty impressive stuff, but we're kind of skeptical. It's the Sabbath day. Nobody in town has anything better to do because they shouldn't be doing anything otherwise. And so they've all showed up to the synagogue. When Jesus reads from this, everyone in town is going to hear from it. And their expectation is that this common, ordinary boy might just be a good teacher. But when Jesus reads the passage and tells you, I tell you this day, this has been fulfilled in your hearing, it rattles some people. It angers them. They're not pleased with what Jesus has to tell them. Because Jesus is making it unequivocally clear that he is responsible for what he has just read. And so listen to these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, this is Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 and 2 that he's reading. You can go back into your Old Testament and read those same words there. And you can check the context that's being used here. But Jesus is saying this about himself. If anyone is unclear when he reads it, he's not just quoting because he tells them, it has been fulfilled in your hearing today. He's saying, 
These words might have been Isaiah's words, and he might have had an appropriate context for it in the time. As the people of Israel were hearing Isaiah preach, and as he shared these words, they understood that Isaiah was talking about himself. Yes, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and what I am proclaiming to Israel. Yes, God has anointed me for this purpose now. But they also understood that Isaiah was oftentimes speaking about the Messiah that they were longing for, the Messiah that they were expecting. And Israel had often framed themselves as the poor, as the captives, as those who were blinded, as those who were not at liberty, those who were oppressed. In their minds, this was how things were, and that all of this was a discussion of how others had treated them. And Jesus here says, it's not just an old story. It's not just the words of Isaiah. When I proclaim these things to you, they are fulfilled. I speak these words as fulfillment. Isaiah spoke them as expectation. I speak them as fulfillment. Now, I want you to think about maybe a child you've seen running around here before. You know, uh, not, not a child anymore, but Isaiah Lubin, a young man who is now off at college, and he's, uh, he's an adult. You know, as, as much as any of us were adults at his age, right? I want you to think about Josiah, right? Josiah running around here, head full of ideas, one of the smartest kids I've ever met. A little precocious sometimes. <laughs> I want you to think about Emma or Micah Dunning, right? These, these kids that, uh, that you all know in some way, shape, or form, and you've probably heard more stories about them than you know, most of us would really like to, and probably more than they would like for you to have heard. We know them. We know the little you know, bits and pieces of them that are bright and wonderful and beautiful and things that we'd love to see nurtured in them so that they might be a great part of the church in the future. But we also know who they came from, Right? Everyone can look at Josiah and say, there's a little bit of Ben Stutzman in there, right? You know, there's, it, everyone can look at Micah and be like, oh my goodness, he is his father's son. At least in our house, there's this constant moment where I'm like, you know, face palming because the things that frustrate me about my son are the things that frustrate me about myself, right? Micah, full confession this morning, okay? We know them. We know where they came from. We know the stories that their lives have been up to this point. And if they went off and they started preaching somewhere else and they came back to us and they stood up in front of us and they told us, you know, the whole Bible is really about me. And when I read it to you, the fulfillment of what you are hearing is standing in your presence. We would lock them up, right? And that's what Jesus is doing. This is a shocking moment. I've said it before, even in just this series, we are sometimes not as shocked by the story of the life of Jesus, as the people who would have written the books that we read were in the moments when Jesus lived them. We are not shocked in the way that the gospel intends to shock us. We should be reading through these and find the moment where Jesus says, yeah, essentially, guys, I'm it. I am the Messiah. And be like, what is he saying? How could that possibly be true? We should be like Peter when he starts talking about his death and he says, 
in order for this to be fulfilled, I must die. And Peter's like, hold on a second. I've read the Torah. I think you're wrong. That should be us as we're reading through, but we know the end of the story, right? Terry's talked about this last, last year when he was doing his study through the life of Jesus. He talked about Christian hindsight, that there are a lot of things when we read the story of Christ that we just sort of take for granted because we know the end of the story. But the life of Jesus is shocking. It is, to someone who has never heard it before, disturbing. And it should be, because this man, who bears no power in the world, who is just a traveling itinerant preacher who was raised in a backwater town that's not particularly respected by all the people around them, is saying that he is the fulfillment of the greatest promise that Israel has been longing for since they first went into captivity. You're like, hold on a second, aren't you just... Mary and Joseph's boy, don't we know about the time you got carried out of the auditorium and got a little whooping because you were a little too rowdy? I don't know if Jesus was ever too rowdy during synagogue. Aren't you the boy that, you know, kind of got a little rambunctious sometimes, had big ideas in your head, and we all laughed at the time because it was cute because you were little, but now that you're a grown man, don't you think maybe you should live in reality? Is it any wonder that this moment in the life of Jesus is kind of the first moment we see the crowd turn on him. Because this is good news, isn't it? Why would someone be so offended by this unless the person making the claim that they're the one fulfilling it seems so improbable? Is there anyone in this room this morning that would be like, you know, I'm kind of against the, the freeing of the captive. The whole proclaiming of liberty thing, I'm just not really for. Look, I think the blind should stay that way. I don't see anybody in here raising their hand and be like, yeah, that's me. This is good news. It would be great news if you believed that the person who said it could do it. But maybe it wouldn't be if you were committed to a system in which you had power over someone else and the proclaiming of their liberty meant you no longer had that power. Maybe having the, the poor hear good news wasn't such a positive thing. Now, I want you to think about in the Old Testament, there's all these laws that are given to the people of Israel. There are expectations. I'm going to move this stool because it's really limiting my ability to pace. All these people, uh, these, these laws that are given for the poor. Hey, you know what? When you plant your fields and you go to harvest, don't go all the way to the edges. Let the poor glean from the edges. Those who can't afford their own fields should still be able to eat. And yes, it's going to come at your cost because you can't, you can't harvest the edges of your crops, but do you really need it anyway? You know, there's this, this law about the year of Jubilee. Yes, people should be able to find themselves having made bad decisions and having to suffer some of the consequences. If they sold off the family property, 
they're going to have to learn to live with the fact that the family property has been sold off for a period of time. Maybe they did it for good reasons, right? Maybe they did it because they really needed the money urgently to be able to continue to live. That's fine. But we have this whole system under which the land is going to return to the family it belongs to. Because, and we'll get to this next week, no one in Israel should be homeless. Go back and look at the Old Testament and find where homelessness is mentioned. It's a really difficult task. In preparing for next week's sermon, I've had a lot of trouble finding homelessness in Israel. The poor are all over the place. There are people who don't have two coins to rub together, but there are no people that have no home. The provision of the law required that people who might find themselves in destitute situations would still be provided for. Now find a place in the Old Testament where these laws were regularly and consistently observed. You're going to be hard-pressed. That's why the story of Ruth is such an incredible story. Ruth and Boaz, this story about a man who actually follows the gleaning laws in society, the man who actually follows the laws about redeeming his kinsmen, a man who actually follows the laws about protecting those who are oppressed and marginalized and without and destitute. It's a miraculous story that shouldn't be miraculous in Scripture. But it is because it was so uncommon for people to follow the law that God had given to them. And we read it and we should have hope because we read it and we say, this is what God always intended. This is what the kingdom of heaven is supposed to look like. If people are following God, nobody goes without Nobody is destitute. Everyone is redeemed. But Boaz is marked as a righteous man because he just does what God wants. And that makes him remarkable. This should be good news to everyone. But this is what God's been telling them to do the whole time and they failed to do it up till this point. And it's bad news for those who have power because it means maybe that power is going to be diminished. And it's bad news coming from the mouth of Jesus because he doesn't seem to have enough power to make it happen. But to us, it's good news because we know the end of the story. Now, what do his disciples do with this? Jesus leaves. He doesn't spend a lot of time talking about slaves, the oppressed, the captive, in these terms throughout the rest of the gospel. So I want to, I wanna, you know, just be confessional here for a moment. There are not times where Jesus goes in and literally breaks the chains of those who have been made captive. In fact, the captive that we read about who's chained does it himself because he's possessed by demons. But what Jesus does is live in some pretty significant and intentional ways in the midst of his people. They remember his words and what he said the good news of the kingdom was, what he came to fulfill. And then they live in light of his teaching in the world that they are a part of. 
And so as we, as we move forward in the New Testament, we don't see Jesus spending a whole lot of time interacting with slaves. Now, he discusses them in many parables, but he doesn't spend a lot of time discussing them out loud in practical, straightforward terms. They are a reality of the culture he lives in, and it's left to his disciples to decide what does it look like for us as the body of Christ to set loose the captive, to proclaim liberty, good news for the poor. Philemon chapter 15, uh, verse 15 and 16, sorry, one chapter in Philemon. Paul is writing to a, a man who has a church that meets in his home, a brother in Christ whom he loves, someone that he personally ministered to and brought to faith. And Paul has had this, this uh, young slave, I'm assuming young slave, named Onesimus, following him around, who has run away from Philemon. And Onesimus was a useless slave. He was of no value. He, he, I don't know if he was lazy, if he wasn't doing the work that he was supposed to do, but as far as Philemon was concerned, and Paul acknowledges this fully, formerly he was useless to you. But now he's useful to both me and you. And this is what Paul tells him when he sends Onesimus back. He says, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, slave, but more than a bondservant, slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. There is little in the New Testament that is more clearly an implementation of the setting free of the captive, of the proclaiming of liberty, than this statement from Paul to Philemon. Now, in history, people have taken the book of Philemon and they've said, you know what this is really about? It's about those runaway slaves that need to be sent back to their masters and dealt with however the master sees fit. But as far as Paul is concerned, I am sending him back to you because it is the legal requirement. It's what I must do. But I expect from you to receive him in this way. He is no longer your slave. He is your brother. There are those who would do a lot of historical revision nowadays uh, that would say that the American slave trade was built out of a Christian ethic. That slaves were implemented because the Bible had uh, allowed it, that it was something that we should you know, be able to do because uh, when you look at the, the Old Testament especially, it's just all over the place and God was very clearly pleased with this situation and, and why not? That slavery was a part of the Christian ethic. I'm gonna argue with you this morning that slavery was a result of the Enlightenment ethic. That mankind can achieve great things if they set their mind to it and utilize the tools that have been placed at their disposal. And sometimes those tools look like other human beings. And we will achieve greatness on the backs of others. That's why in the founding documents for our country, written by a bunch of Enlightenment individuals, 
those who were slaves were treated as less than. They were a tool for commerce. They were a tool for building a country. The truth is that the abolitionist movement was largely a Christian movement. And there were a lot of Christians that spoke very widely and vocally about the evils of slavery. There were a lot of Christians that publicly decried the state of slavery in the United States. There's a a hymn that you've probably not thought of as a hymn. You've probably just thought of it as a Christmas song that is one of the most clear statements of Christian belief in the abolition of slavery that you could possibly imagine. Change shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. O holy night. There were people in this country who refused to sing that song because of the clarity of those statements. There's a review of it early after it was written that said, there is nothing that breaks more greatly the mood of this festive season than the accursed third verse. I think it probably does break the mood to realize that you're violating the will of the Savior you're singing about. How can you celebrate the arrival of the Messiah who claims liberty, who claims good news for the poor, sight for the blind? Will you benefit from the systems that oppress enslave, drive into debt, and blind people. Those words in that song were inspired by the passage that was our scripture reading this morning. Those words come from Isaiah 6. Now, they're paraphrased so that they rhyme nicely and they flow beautifully, right? Sometimes when we stop for a moment and we look at the words of Scripture, we find ourselves offended. That really just ruins my mood. I can't believe God would tell me something I don't want to hear. This morning, I want us to look at two more passages and think about them from the perspective that we have thought about this morning, these other passages that we've read. The first is from Galatians, which was a book we spent a lot of time in this last summer. It says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God, Adelphos, sons and daughters, the children of God. You are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The distinctions that our society places on you that cause division, that place one of you above the other, one of you above the other, 
cease to exist in the reality that you are children of God. What is the hierarchy in the kingdom of heaven? There is God and all of his children. There is no room for one of us to lord over another. We've uh, spent some time on Wednesday nights looking at the books of First and Second Peter. And First Peter is a very strong indication that God's expectation for people in his household to live in submission to him first and one another. But you can't submit to one another and find yourself at the top of the heap, can you? Because if I submit to Janine, and Janine submits to me, it's, it's just this continuous circle, right? What can I do to benefit Janine? I must submit myself to her needs. I must show her the kind of love that Jesus showed to us. What must Janine do to submit to me? She must find ways to serve the needs that I have, in the way that Christ found ways to serve the needs of his disciples. Jesus is at the top and still finds himself submitting to those who are under him by washing their feet, by touching the unclean in society, by dining at tables with people who are the wrong sort. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The slaves are heirs. The Greeks are heirs. The women are heirs. These are radical statements in the time of Christ, radical statements in the time of Paul. These are things that should shock us and we should ask ourselves, do we find them shocking or do we take them for granted? Because if we're shocked by them, they should challenge us. As people heard those words, change shall he break for the slave is our brother, they were shocked by them. And while many were offended by them deeply, some had to consider for the first time the implication of those words and make radical changes to the way that they approached life. They had to set loose their own captives. When we hear these words from Scripture, if we're not shocked, we're not changed. I want to ask you this morning, when you read these words, does it shake you to some extent? And if not, you might look at your life and say, well, I have it all figured out. Just like the slavery thing, I have it all figured out. I don't even need to consider what it means for someone to be a Greek, a slave, or a female in the context of the scripture that regards the kingdom of heaven. If you're doing that properly, congratulations, you're a much better person than I. Because I have to ask myself, who are the Greek and the slave and the female today? Have they changed as much as we think they have? Paul echoes these words in Colossians chapter 3, verse 9 through 11. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the creator. 
Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Christ is all and in all. And in all. There is no exclusivity, exclusivity, there we go, to the person in whom Christ might find himself. And sometimes we would like to say, yeah, but God, God's made it pretty clear that this person might have a little more Jesus than that person. And Paul says, Christ is all and in all. And it's for this reason. You're not going to lie to one another anymore. It's for this reason that you will treat one another as heirs of this good news. Are we challenged by this? Does it require us to step outside of ourselves for a moment and ask, what assumptions have I made about this passage, about the other passage, about Jesus' statements, about the liberty given to the captive that I've not considered? Am I living the spirit of jubilee and of gleaning on the edges of the field, the setting free of the captive? Am I challenged by those passages as well? Because those laws may not be the laws that God applies to us today, but they are certainly a revelation of the heart that he has. This morning, I want to I leave you with this thought. I want to encourage you to really struggle and wrestle with it because I think that if we're not struggling, if we're not wrestling, we are not Israel, those who wrestle with God. We are not the descendants of Abraham we don't wrestle with what God has presented to us so that we might become stronger through it. Who are the slaves in your life? Who are those that you have power over that you need to set free? Are there chains that you have placed on someone else that you need to break? I don't know who those people are. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it is someone in your life that uh, has been your employee. Maybe it's your next-door neighbor that you have shamed for decades and decades about something that they've done, and they feel captive to it. If you've got blackmail on somebody and you're just waiting to drop that bomb and they know it, maybe they're your slave. Maybe they are your captive. Maybe you need to set them free. I don't know who your slave might be, who your captive might be, but if you're holding someone captive in some way, shape, or form, Christ calls you to end their oppression. I have some good news to share with you this morning. Uh, I have to make this announcement. This is important. I want you all to listen to it. it, it, it we have a short window of time to make this happen. Um, last week, Milton Jones came and shared with us about Christian Relief Fund. And he shared about the good work that they do in offering sponsorships of children within their own countries so that they can go to school, so that they can receive food and water, so that they can have clean clothing, so that they can receive an education, but they can also hear the story of the gospel taught in the schools where they happen to be going. 
That's good news, right? I think that's very much in keeping with what we're talking about this morning, the, the proclamation of good news to the poor. They also drill wells all over the world, uh, primarily in Africa, but also in Central America and in Asia and in places where water is a great need. And they build communities around these wells and they teach people how to maintain these wells and they plant churches next to these wells. And anyone can come and get the water Nobody is prohibited. You don't have to attend church on Sunday morning to get the water, but man, isn't it convenient that there is a church here and a community that's growing up around this well, and they know my needs, and they know what it is that's going on in my life. They seem to have something more that I need, something more than just water. It's very much that story of the woman at the well, right? Uh, you know, the well is deep. Can you, can you really draw water out of here? You don't have anything to draw it with. Well, the good news is Milton's got what we need to draw the water out of a well, and the Bible takes care of the rest. This morning, uh, the elders and, and uh, I have talked about this. Uh, Don uh, heard a story from Greg Strawn on Sunday last week as we were visiting with, uh, with Milton Jones, uh, and he said, I got up on one Sunday morning, and I had not consulted with my elders about it, but I knew it was what I needed to do, and I told the church that in three Sundays, right, Greg? Three Sundays, we're gonna have uh, a, a Sunday where we're gonna have a $5,000 offering on Sunday morning, we're gonna have a $5,000 offering for Christian Relief Fund to drill a well, and there was something else. Food to give away, Food to, give away to our community. Well, this morning, we're not, we're not necessarily going exactly the route that uh, uh, Greg went, but we are going to have, in three Sundays, a Sunday where we will, we will have a special offering to raise money to build a well. We believe that this is something that God is calling our church to do. Uh, we also believe we want to stretch in our giving, because over the last few years, uh, we, have, we have maintained our giving as a congregation, but we want to grow in our giving. If we're not growing, what are we doing? And so we want to challenge the congregation to give. And on the Sunday that we have this particular opportunity, we are encouraging everyone to continue to give your regular offering, but come prepared to give a special offering to drill a well somewhere in the world. We don't know where it's going to happen, but one Sunday, as one family, we are going to drill one well. Three weeks from now, one Sunday, one family, one well, three weeks. This is gonna be March 3rd, conveniently, right? Uh, three Sundays from now. I wanna encourage you to think about what it is that you have to give. Now, if you are this big, you're probably over there, so you're not hearing this, but we want you to bring your change. If all you have to give is you know, $5, bring $5 to give. If you have $1,000 laying around that you don't know what to do with, bring $1,000. Wouldn't it be outstanding if we had planned to build one well and we ended up building two? I think in this room we have the resources to do that. And I believe that this is something that God is calling our church to do. As I heard more stories from Milton about what it is that they do and the ways in which that uh, individuals have been blessed just knowing that the well that's dedicated in the name of their loved one or the well that their church built together have been blessed, I want that for our church. I want us to be able to say we are a church that gives people water. We are a church that gives people hope. We are a church that gives people a community to belong to. 
I think that we can do this. And so I'm challenging you to come on March 3rd prepared to give a special offering and be prepared to see God act miraculously in this body as we consider those who are poor and maybe captive to their poverty, captive to their lack of water, some women who have to walk miles and miles every day to be able to provide clean water for their family are no longer held captive by the situation that they find themselves in. Let's be people who break chains. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray as a congregation that we will be committed to proclaiming the good news, to the setting free of the captive, to the giving of sight to the blind, to the ending of oppression. Help us to be instrumental in the good work that you are doing here in Newburgh, and help us to be about that with our own hands and feet. Help us to be about the good news of the work that you are doing in Africa and Central America and Asia. And Father, if we can do that on our own two hands and feet, four hands, two hands, two feet, uh, help us to do that. But if, if what we need to do is offer our goods, our money, help us to be so detached from that and so committed to the kingdom of heaven that $5,000 on a single Sunday is an easy thing. Help us to be the kind of people who are so generous and so committed to being the hands and feet of Jesus that when we hear his words, we are looking for ways to make it more difficult for ourselves for the benefit of others. Help us to be challenged. Help us to have our hearts shaped and changed by the shocking words of Jesus. Father, we pray that your spirit guides us in the choices we make. I pray for each person in this congregation to consider how their giving might support the kingdom of heaven. It's all this that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand as we continue our worship this morning uh, and to contemplate how God has set us free. After the second and fourth verse of this song, there's going to be... Um